Lucifer Podcast is brought to you by the Cage Club Network. For all things comics, movies, media, music, and more, check out the Cage Club Network. That's cageclub.me. Hey everybody, welcome back to all new, all different Uncanny X's for Podcast, where we examine the Uncanny comic book franchise as it begins its multi-titled 80s expansion. I'm your host Jonah. I'm Dylan. And I'm Nico, and we hope you guys survive the experience here at Uncanny X's for Podcast. It's been a really interesting ride since we kicked off our second season of 80s Mutant Mania back in January. We started things off with God Loves Man Kills, and I think one of the things that struck me the most interesting is kind of like how far and not far we've moved at the same time. As of this episode, we're officially out of consistent Marvel omnibus material. We began this project with Giant Size Number 1, and then switched over to Uncanny Night. And here we are at Uncanny 176. Today's episode is going to cover New Mutants 7 through 12 by Chris Claremont and Sal Buscema, as well as Uncanny X-Men Annual Number 7 by Way Too Many People, and Uncanny 176. Whether it's John Romita's pencils on an issue that kind of cemented Madeline as important, or the well-intentioned but horrifying racism of Nova Roma, this is a really decided turning point for the X-Men. The annual is nonsense, but There's something else I need to talk about yet before this. Okay, I need to rewind a little bit further. Now, if you've been following along, I refer to the Omnibus a lot, or I refer to the Epic Collections a lot. And whether you're reading today's content in New Mutants Epic Collection number one, or Marvel Omnibus volume number three of the Uncanny X-Men line, the next thing in the series is Magic 1 through 4. Both books end, like the next issue in both books is Magic, the Ileana miniseries 1 through 4. Now, we are going to be taking a look at that, not just yet, but... We will be taking a look at it very soon, so it's kind of interesting that this really does kind of like see the end of that era. I feel like this really is kind of like a closed door on everything that started in the post-Phoenix saga, John Byrne departing era. Jonah, you've seen the X-Men transform a lot, but this time they discovered an entire new country that wasn't new. And wow, they managed to involve blackface. Hmm. So tell me, Nova Roma, new Awada? Well, you know what they say, Nova Roma wasn't built in a day. It was not built very long ago, no. This is one of those situations where they definitely played it by ear the best they could, but the continuity on Nova Roma becomes a goddamn disaster. I feel like this was an excuse to just draw men as centurions and in Roman soldier garb, because I can't really think of another reason why specifically it was Nova Roma. That was just weird. Who thinks, oh, they're gonna go explore the Amazon. What if they found a city that was basically New Rome. Well, it actually makes a lot of sense to contextualize it in the period if you think about the fact that this came out in like 1983, 1984 and Raiders of the Lost Ark was going on and there was this big draw. I mean, for real though, there was like a big draw back to this weird era that was super uncomfortable for everybody involved. Dylan, when you think magma, I'm sure you think Nova Roma. When you think Nova Roma, I'm sure you think, oh God, layers of uncomfortable xenophobia. This is a weird story to jump back into. How is it aged for you? It hasn't aged well. Um, I 
love Magma. She's one of my secret favorites. But I hate that all of this weird slight but not slight racism and blackface, like you mentioned, is all connected to Magma's history. Like, it's a pretty awful origin story for a character. I slightly understand where it wasn't intentional to be very off-putting with this weird racism, but it's just... I feel like sometimes Marvel editors were not paying attention to how certain stories could be viewed as racist. And yeah, it's that's just my thoughts. I hate Magma's origins. And it's kind of interesting because the notions of, for lack of a better term, color play as an element of the story echo from New Mutants number seven to the Uncanny Annual. I never really find the Impossible Man like that freak. I think he's entertaining, but everything he turns into always has that weird shade of green to it. So in that regard, I'm always kind of like, no, that's that's the impossible man. Galactus isn't green. That's that's not okay. Unless he's like, shit, I'm the Hulk. I'm never like that thrown off by the impossible man. So I think this idea of disguising yourself was something that was so readily used by Claremont. He had trouble understanding racial implications that he was creating with these characters. And if I were a young reader and was a person of color picking this book up for the first time, I would be pretty offended by the racial overtones of Magma being darker skinned and having dark hair and not speaking English. But once she's washed clean and the illusion is broken, the bit is over. It just, it reads really problematically. It is pretty awful. I don't understand why that needed to be a part of the story. Magma Amara could have been a person of color and it would have been completely fine. Maybe it wouldn't have been as bad, even though it's pretty bad. I don't know if there's much way to salvage it, but I feel like it's, maybe it's made worse because the payoff of understanding why Amara was like that doesn't happen until the end of New Mutants 11, which I think is a pretty far time to have that kind of quote unquote payoff happen. I think Maybe if it was explained earlier, it might have made it 3% better. But when you're already at like a negative 1,000, 3% more positive doesn't make it that much better. I agree. To discuss the story, New Mutants number 7 picks up with the team reeling from the loss of karma. That really confusing bit at the end of 6 leads into a pretty emotional opening to issue 7. Between 7 and 8, the New Mutants travel to Nova Roma, more or less getting shipwrecked there, but all sorts of Birdo's family drama. It is some kind of weird Kramer versus Hellfire Kramer and I don't know what's going on. But we spend issues 9, 10, and 11 dealing with Nova Roma before coming back with Magma in 12. The most notable things from this arc are the introduction of Magma and Nova Roma, the layered depth and complexity of Birdo's family life, which will continue throughout his character even to today, and the introduction of major villainous Selene. Now, we've talked a bit about the comfortability of the magma setup, but we kind of skipped over all of the Birdo family stuff. Dylan, Birdo's family sucks. <laughs> His father is awful and greedy and it makes 
sense why he is because of the or- organization that he's a part of, but to then be introduced to his mom and how it slightly just comes off that maybe she's not that bad. She's just very obsessed with her work, but then it just turns out that no, she's just as bad and awful as his dad. It just helps Birdo fit in with the rest of new mutant characters and their kind of awful troubled lives. I almost view Birdo's mom as an enabler because she's pretty easily able to forgive her husband trying to assassinate her and her kid. It's really disheartening to see someone who's portrayed as a good person, but having them enable someone who is abusive and mean and problematic really doesn't do her any favors and puts her on the same level as her husband. It's one thing if you are an evil person, but to see someone do evil and then claim they're just lost? No, you've lost a lot of points from me. They just lost karma, and Birdo is ragging on Sam for hitting some trees. And look, I'm not like, nah, it's cool, kill the environment. But I am kind of like, the dude made a mistake. Don't be an ass asshole, Birdo. Everybody's hurting right now. I also thought it was a weird road to Nova Roma. One of the things that was most interesting was Danny being like, oh no, Rain, you're overheating. Get naked and I'll make you think you're wet. (laughs) What? That's, I mean, okay, psychosomatic reactions, sure. But Danny, she's not actually wet. You can't convince a person that they've drank to the point where their body hydrates. Well, apparently with her power set, she can. I think she kind of mentions it with her practicing controlling and not just having to do nightmares with her projections. She's able to tap into somebody's mind and make them feel certain emotions. And even if they're not physically happening, like Rain getting a hailstorm, on her. Rain thinks it's real, so Rain's body is going to react that way. It's kind of how the human brain works. Even if something doesn't actually happen, you can trick your brain into doing a lot of different things and believing a lot of different things. So that's how the way I interpreted. However, it really wasn't that clear, so I understand where your confusion is coming from. It's one thing to say her mutant power is to bring out manifestations of someone's deepest fears. It's another thing to bring about her being able to create create illusions so real it tricks somebody's brain. And that's the thing I think I'm getting at. You can only trick a brain so far. Her body does not actually have water now. Speaking of somebody's body, I don't know about you two, but I was a little uncomfortable with the amount of sexualization of Danny. It's one thing when it's happening to just Danny and not Rain, and that's really upsetting. It is kind of happening with Birdo enough, and Sam is constantly shirtless, not that I'm complaining about it a lot, but there needs to be a fair treatment, especially with your female characters. You come across as an objectifier. Well, part of the problem is, number one, Shan had a really tragic backstory where I think sexualizing her early on would have been dangerous. But, I mean, Rain's a fucking child. So Danny's the only new mutant left to sexualize, and that's almost explicitly why Magma was written I was going to say, for me, I kind of feel like (laughs) it's just too much sexualizing for a book that's supposed to be about teenagers. Well, we were in the era of a very special episode. They were trying to keep this book at the cutting edge of, I guess, just say no teens live real life culture. However, from real life to, oh my god, what a comic book character, Celine. Oh, finally, glorious, glorious Celine. I love her so much. She is amazing. just the most ridiculous villain. She's like the lady version of Shadow King. I just love her and think she's bonkers, batshit, banana pants, crazy, and Claire 
Claremont has so much fun writing her as this over-the-top, like, really pulp villain. She is like an adventure comic evil sorceress. We stan a campy queen. We stan a campy queen. Even though I knew that these issues were going to have the awfulness of the blackface with Magma, like I said, Magma is one of my favorite characters, and Celine is one of my favorite villains, so... Yes, I knew this was coming and I was a little afraid of it, but I was also just very happy because Celine is one of my favorite villains and she's awesome. Like you said, she's this weird witch, mutant, vampire, whatever, any type of evilness that happened that was campy in the 80s all mixed into one and it's amazing. Because it says something interesting about where the new mutants are going to go that the X-Men kind of can't. The X-Men are streamlining to this much more realistic drama and then to Look at Magma. She is visually different. Soon we'll have Warlock. Visually different. The villains here are Celine and Nova Roma, this almost playset era adventure. The contrast of what the X-Men are going through to what the New Mutants are going through. They're finally getting their pacing as their own kind of book. And while I feel the Nova Roma stuff kind of wraps up way too quickly, it just sort of feels like it's suddenly over. I find issue 12 really fulfilling. It's almost like issue 12 completes the narrative that began in Marvel graphic novel number four, which introduced the New Mutants as a team. I maybe felt I had to wait a little too long for that payoff, but I know it was a different era. I just feel like at the end of 12, it's finally like a real team. And I don't know if that's because Shan sort of comes off like the weird, distant, older cousin who goes away to art school and comes back like an intense lesbian or... With a bionic leg. With a bionic leg. Or if it's that Magma just has that, I don't wear a shirt, kind of like, I'm easy, fun vibe. She is a simpler read than Karma, who is wrapped up in the pain of the American involvement in Vietnam. The way I saw Magma, this is my introduction introduction to her and I will say this I was not expecting a new mutant to appear and to be joining the team so soon though it makes sense because I have no idea if and or when Shen will be back especially with her design I almost saw Magma Amara as the Storm stand-in for this group she's drawn very similar to how Storm was drawn when Storm goes into her primal goddess and can't control her powers Amara is scared of her powers and not understanding them and killing innocent people and becoming evil and it's this similar parallel of does she have a duty to help or is she too afraid of her powers i find that i found it very similar to storm so it's almost that she's a stand-in and not that i don't think she can be her own character but it's almost as if claremont needed a basis for a character to get comfortable writing someone new like using a template yeah like the elemental template and the hothead template and the boy next door template i really see that dylan does it feel like the real new mutants to you yet or are you still waiting for a few pieces i would say by the end of these issues so by the end of issue 12 it's starting to feel like the new mutants that i love Uh, with the addition of magma it just kind of even though it was only a few issues, the, the group that we had of Shannon, Rain, and Danny, and Sam, and Berto, they just, 
all kind of seem to mesh well with each other really, really quickly. And I, I kind of think that that was too quick. I, I think they still need to learn about each other more and find differences. And just when they throw in a new character like Amara, it helps you feel like the X-Men and the mutants are a real thing that's happening and that it's not just, oh, it happened to five kids and no other kids would ever join the new mutants type of thing. So I this is the beginning of me really liking the new mutants because of the addition and adding new personalities to the team. I think two issues that really summarize the juxtaposition of New Mutants and Uncanny X-Men are New Mutants 12 and Uncanny Annual 7. New Mutants 12 sees Magma lose control of her powers in public and kind of like trash in New York City, but Annual number 7 sees the X-Men have to work with, I guess, every single superhero in the entire Marvel Universe. I'm sorry, but like, the extent to which the damage occurs in New Mutants 12, I feel like Rogue's been beaten down for less. I feel feel like we've seen Spider-Man in Marvel Team-Up turn on people for less, and everybody's real chill about it. And then the level of threat in Uncanny Annual number 7 is so high, it feels like that should be a major crossover event, even though it's just the Impossible Man. Jonah, this was your first Impossible Man, correct? Yes. Dylan, have you ever Impossible Manned before? I don't actually think too much in comics, but times that he's shown up in Marvel animated shows, yes. I think the severity of these two issues really captures the differences they're trying to play. In Uncanny X-Men, the world might end, but in New Mutants, it's just growing up. I would agree. The issue itself, because of Impossible Man being Galactus, and then just the severity of basically the attacks on everyone in the book, it really should have been more than just five or six X-Men dealing with him. It kind of also, I feel in my own way, kind of feel like it takes away from it being an annual book because yeah, annuals are usually just one-shot issues, but not when you have a villain that is pretending to be a Galactus. This should actually be even a longer story too, just like you mentioned the whole Nova Roma needing to be longer. I feel like this annual should have been like a story that spanned through like two or three different annuals. It was a huge story. I completely agree. Jonah, did this feel like it could possibly have any ramifications? Like once you realized how short this story was, that it wasn't going anywhere else, did you kind of get a sense that this was going to be one of those one and dones? Unfortunately, yes. Well, I think the way it does end is decently clever having Lalandra be a diplomat. Everything just felt so fast. There was weird slowdowns. Like, I don't think there needed to be a full page of Nick Fury having sex. (laughs) Listen, and having Kitty walk in on it. Oh my God. That did not need to be its whole page by itself. This is an X-Men annual book. I, I will say to go to the mentioning of Kitty walking in on it. I do like that they had something like that happen because a character who can walk through walls without knocking needs to learn that maybe you shouldn't go through a wall. Well, we also learned that Kitty apparently likes to make out with people in other people's rooms and get surprised when that person shows up to their room. So... <laughs> I do have to agree. Kitty keeps winding up in these weird sexual situations, whether it's her own sexual situation or someone else's sexual situation. I'm unsettled by it. But I'm also sort of unsettled by the amount of, like, weird asides in this issue. I felt like Claremont was like, I'm going to give personality to everybody in the entirety of the Avengers (laughs) and the Marvel offices. Jonah, you had some choice words about the weird mess 
meta of this issue. Before I even touch on that, we get a kind of resolution to Emma being comatose of why that happened. It was Jason Wingard mastermind. This goes to my problem with them putting information in weird places. Something like that definitely should not have been in an annual. That's definitely more of a main uncanny storyline that should have been talked about. We got to the meta part and I remember messaging Nico being like, what's up? What? what? It's it's just weird. It really is just weird. <laughs> I don't think it's bad. I think it's got, I got a good maybe two chuckles out of it, but it felt like a SNL sketch. That is the best way I can describe it. Well, and because the whole thing, it turns out, is a scavenger hunt that the impossible man has orchestrated and it all goes away if he just gives everything back. Oh, <laughs> but like all of his people who apparently come from a hive mind were like the best way to determine who should be our leader now after Galactus ate our planet is steal a bunch of stuff and whoever got the coolest stuff wins. What kind of dumb ass bullshit contest <laughs> is that? Well, all I know is that inexplicably this book has like Michael Golden, Brett Blevins, Bob Weakak, Tom Mandrake, Terry Austin, Brett Breeding, not sure who he is, Bill Anderson, Steve Leoloa. There were just so many people on this annual and it feels like this annual should have been a bigger deal, but like this annual doesn't come to mind when I think about this era of X-Men. It's a pretty forgettable story. It kind of exemplifies why I think the annual format as we knew it died. I really wish I could say that I would never see the Impossible Man in any X-Men books in the future of this show, but I know that's an incorrect answer. And I, if I'm remembering correctly, I know it'll be way, way, way in the future from now, but I'm pretty sure there's even a really boring X-Force annual that also has the Impossible Man. That sounds about right to my memory, yeah. I think my problem with the Impossible Man from when I read him is like he's a half- fourth wall breaking character like he has the attributes of a character that would be breaking the fourth wall but he doesn't actually do it yeah he's definitely a fourth wall breaker type so that he didn't hear was sort of surprising however from an issue with far too many creative credits to list to an issue with pretty simple credits claremont and ramita on uncanny 176 scott's honeymoon or something i am a madeline fan but this issue was so boring the most boring couple i don't understand like could we have just like mentioned this in passing or something like could we just be like oh yeah there was that time where scott and maddie were on a boat and they got attacked by some sea creatures i didn't need like 20 or so panels telling me this boring story a story i feel like we saw with scott last time he went off on his own like wasn't this also the despair issue after the dark phoenix saga it bears a lot of resemblance to him and lee forrester going to lee's dad's house with the man thing and bears a lot of resemblance and it's almost the exact same story they get shipwrecked scott has to close his eyes because he loses a visor and he can't open them and the ladies are like but you're so buff also he's in like booty <laughs> denim shorts that are like cut chris i'm all for a himbo but like if you drew <laughs> if you drew him with daisy dukes i don't i don't know those were not men's booty shorts no those were floss those were tooth floss just way far down it's really interesting to have the man be the one that is the very sexualized in a couple at least with these two and him having the floss i really do like having madeline around a summers who's very scantily dressed i hope we have more of this madeline plays a really interesting role in x-men fandom she's a name that stirs up a lot of controversy jonah i'm glad you don't know 
as much about Madeline because it at least lets the story play out for you in an interesting way. And I do like, especially considering we were talking about how Danny felt like the most sexualized character in New Mutants, having Scott be more sexualized in Uncanny is definitely a benefit. Though I kind of, did anybody else get like weird Caliban is upset about getting friend zoned vibes? <laughs> I think Caliban just misses him some kitty. No no kitty for Caliban. <laughs> I, let me say this. I was shocked to find out that Caliban is apparently one of the founding Morlocks. That was something I heard and read. <laughs> which is weird because didn't they say they've been down there for generations? Yeah, I believe they did, which doesn't make sense as to how... Calissa just looks very young-ish, so how she would be one of the founders... In my heart and in my mind, Linda Perry plays Callisto. Oh, I like that. The latest issues we've been reading, one problem I'm encountering is that he's focusing on very specific characters. This is an X-Men book. The only current X-Men who appeared was Wolverine. Where is the rest of the team? Well, we had that wonderful, weird, creepy fire and damnation sequence where everybody watched a politician be like, all of the X-Men have to die. And they introduced, love of my life, Val Cooper. Not Val Homer. No, Val Cooper. She's going to play a really pivotal role for the next 200 issues. I'm a Val Cooper fan personally, but 176 definitely felt like a regrouping issue. Like, he finally got through 175, all of the Mastermind stuff he'd been paying off, nobody in space, no more brood. He had the new mutants set up, they were on their way, they were doing the Nova Roma thing. He could catch his breath, figure out what he's going to do next, and to be completely real with you, what he does next is meander. This did feel like a meandering issue, and like, he had to play the game of I need to buy time because not much really happens in this outside of wrapping up what Scott's doing with Madeline which is going on a honeymoon and also being tentacle grabbed by a squid that the Morlocks are up to something and planning to do something and that the US government is now very aware of mutants and that all these other countries have mutants and they're like we need our own team I wonder how long that's gonna last and it's really interesting that you mention that there was like a kind of like a tentacle porny thing to it because we know around this time Claremont was reading manga and watching anime because it super influenced him on Wolverine. So, dear God. I do also think that the X-Men are kind of in a holding pattern for a minute because we're dangerously close to Secret Wars. And the plot of Secret Wars involves everyone disappearing in one minute and reappearing roughly a few days later, but for everyone who disappeared, it was a year. And that story plays out over the course of a series that was told over a year. So it feels very much like Claremont knew where he wanted to go at 181, but just couldn't get himself there yet. Dylan, when you think of X-Men solo stories, specifically Scott ones, does this one come to mind or does this one fade into the background? Fades into the background. I remember it as whenever Madeline first showed up, Scott had some really boring stories with her that don't affect any part of Scott's future history. I mean, his future history consists of he was with Madeline for a while and that's it. There's no no relevance to this octopus attacking him or any other boring story that we've read of them so far. So, yeah. Hey 
everyone. This is Kyle. This is Regina. And we are here to give some little back information about Nova Roma and the characters that reside there. So in this week's episode of 80s Mutant Mania, the guys discussed the New Mutants trip to Nova Roma where they met Magma and they also encountered a character named Celine. So we figured we'd give a little backstory on this whole area and Celine, since we are starting to see some hints of at least Celine in the Dawn of X titles. So Regina, I'll admit I don't have a lot of experience with the Nova Roma storyline. Would you be able to tell me a little bit about the country and how it came to be where it is? Sure. And of course... As with most things X-related, it's a little bit complicated. <laughs> because why wouldn't it be? <laughs> so right? Nova Roma was actually founded by Celine as kind of, I guess, a feeding ground so that she could have, a, for lack of a better word, a good food source. It's actually in Brazil, but it's not really considered Brazilian because of the era that it's set in. It's still set in like 44 BC. That was founded after the death of Julius Caesar. It was hidden in modern Brazil. And I kind of compared a little bit to like Otherworld and Avalon where, you know, it's part of the X-World but it's not actually in the X-World. It's kind of got its own thing going. It's still steeped in old traditions like with the Republicans, Little R, and class divisions that divided ancient Rome, which never ended for the people that reside in Nova Roma. Celine basically created it as a testament to her favorite time period. So she had her group of people basically worshipping her there that she kept and that she was feeding off of. It's kind of gone back and forth. So for a long time, you know, we just assumed that the original story that we heard about about the origin of Nova Roma being an actual city that got these people from the specific time period that lived there. Then later in the 90s, it kind of got retconned where they were like, oh, we were just kidding. <laughs> you know? Wait, seriously? Right. So they're kind of like, well, it's not actually descended from these people. What it is is Celine brainwashed a bunch of people, dumped them there so that she could beat on them. But they're not really, you know, from this ancient tradition. They're just brainwashed people that are there that she's feeding off of. Wow. Then <laughs> that is that's insane. <laughs> because of course they did. Then they switched it back and said, "Oh no, we were just kidding. They really were the descendants of this specific era of Julius Caesar's people." So it kind of <laughs> gone back and forth. The most recent visit that we've had with Nova Roma, the assumption is that it really was this hidden city that Celine founded with these original people descended from that particular era, and they kept to that particular era. They don't have technology. They're still practically wearing togas. They still have like center that kind of rule the classes there. That's kind of where we are as of right now, as far as we know. Okay, so with Dawn of X, we're seeing that Celine has a kind of synergistic connection with the functioning of Krakoa. Do you see that as possibly causing a problem in the future? Celine is such an interesting character, and I want to dislike her because of her villainous capacity, but I love her. <laughs> <laughs> so it's interesting because she's been kind of put in charge of monitoring Krakoa and she's got this thing in common with Krakoa that they both siphon off the energies of other mutants. So I am interested in kind of seeing how
how is this going to work? How is this going to go? Is she actually going to be able to fulfill her proposed duties without doing something nefarious in the future? I'm wondering if at some point they're going to bring Nova Roma. And Nova Roma is actually, when I was looking into some information about it, it has only appeared a few times. I think I think on the Marvel directory, they only have 11 actual appearances of Nova Roma. Most of the appearances are outside of Nova Roma. Between Celine and Magma, and they refer to it. There's a couple of issues with Empath and his adventures with Amara when they were there. So it's kind of interesting to see how is this actually going to pan out. Okay, so am I correct that Celine was part of the Hellfire Club as well at some point? Oh, definitely. She started out when we first meet her, or I guess when we first meet Magma, she is participating in, you know, this kind of situation where she's got this group of people that are all worshipping her, and they're basically sacrificing people to her. Amara's father had sent her away because he knew that she was kind of on the list of people to be taken by Celine. So she's running away and the new mutants meet her. And her father ends up saying, okay, after all of these adventures, you know, I want you to be safe from Selena. I want you to go with these new people, meet this larger world that's out there that we don't even know about. We don't know how to live in that kind of world. And then come back later and share what you've learned. So Amara runs off with the new mutants. Some point she meets up with Celine again and Celine is like, oh, I'm going to get this girl. This girl is mine. I mean, at that point, we don't really know that Amara is actually Celine's granddaughter. Oh. <laughs> right. So, of course, they've got family drama thrown in here, too. She eventually crosses paths with the Hellfire Club, and Celine is like, look, I want in. I think that this group is going to be able to help me achieve the goals that I have. So she does become part of the Hellfire Club. She's got her little dominatrix, black Emma Frost version of her black queen outfit. Mm-hmm. So she does join the Hellfire Club and use that as kind of her means to get to Amara and to actually Rachel Gray for a little while. They had a lot of interactions for a little bit. Uh, Amara and Rachel Gray actually went up against Celine around the time that she was joining the Hellfire Club. And um, that's really kind of when we see Magma's real characterization starts to come out because she's kind of a little bit of a cardboard cutout for a little while. Right. But then we see her fire and she (laughs) wants to get revenge on this woman who has basically terrorized the people of Nova Roma for a long time. Amara is like, this chick is evil and I'm ready to destroy her. <laughs> okay. <laughs> so that's kind of where we see Celine come in as the Black Queen of the Hellfire Club. And, you know, she's a member of the Hellfire Club for quite a while. Do you think that connection might reappear in the Dawn of X titles? Maybe as something that Nico, Jonah, Dylan, and I have wished for as her as the Lord Imperial, maybe? You know, that is a really interesting question. When the mutants are coming to Krakoa and one of the things that they espouse is that, you know, whatever you did before, that's your old life. You're forgiven for all of your past sins. We're creating a new people here, a new culture. I wonder if it's going to be that easy for Amara because Celine did kill her mother. I don't know if you can ever really get over that. So okay. I guess we'll kind of see. <laughs> it's going to be an interesting ride. It definitely will be. So until next time, Regina, where can everybody find you? You can find me on Instagram at the Red Queen underscore on underscore IG. And where can I find you, Kyle? You can find me on both Twitter and Instagram at Drantis82. So until next time, everybody. Bye. Bye.
The X-Men are definitely bound for some big changes in the next few issues, and it's going to be fascinating to watch Uncanny Flounder while New Mutants revels in the age of Hellions and the Bill Sienkiewicz years. Uncanny is going to find its footing again shortly thereafter in the early 200s, and that spells almost certain doom for the success of the New Mutants as a title. Of course, that also means that X-Factor is just around the corner, and X-Men Alpha Flight, there's just so many events that 80s mutant mania is going to have to shift pretty significantly in vantage point. It's why there's such a strong delineation between 80s mutant mania and 70s X-Men explosion. In the 70s, it felt like Chris Claremont was doing everything he could to make sure that the X-Men appeared everywhere and became household names. In the 80s, it felt like every title was desperate to get a little bit of that X-Men mutant magic to keep everything going a little bit longer. This exploration of the X-Men as its two dueling teams has been pretty successful. I've been happy with the outcome of intermingling X-Men and New Mutants as a single line. The narrative is clear, and the perspective on both books is starting to develop in its own way. The X-Men are going to deal with larger-than-life situations, while the New Mutants, I don't know, handle shoplifting at the mall. And it's an important distinction that changes how the X franchise operates. Until we get there, it's been a pleasure as always discussing this material with you guys. Dylan, other than here on We Are Krakoa, wearekrakoa.com, and all the different facets of the amazingness that is the Cage Club Network, where can everybody find you online? Hey, everybody can find me online on Facebook at my X-Men group that is titled House of X. Or you can find me on Instagram at Warpath underscore Dylan. That is Warpath underscore D-Y-L-A-N. Jonah, where can everybody find you? You can find me choosing my villain name as the weapon that I hold and having no other discernible personality. Yeah, okay, no. Jumping back into the episode for a minute. Axe is the dumbest fucking thing. I don't know how I let this go. He is like a mean racial stereotype and like, he's kind of hot. But like, <laughs> number one, that dumb hair that looks like a mane and that dumb chin pube that he has I mean boy fills out a pair of jeans but like <laughs> Axe is the dumbest fucking villain I mean like his name should just be Booga and his power should just be scaring people I kind of want Axe to come back now I need him to return with a new modernized like sexy look Hatchet yeah it's actually an ergonomic Axe he developed arthritis in the late 90s and he started getting to work developing a patent for an ergonomic supervillain Axe that would allow him to strike hearts in the fear of good guys and also preserve what little cartilage what little cartilage he still had in his elbow. It was a daring, trying time for him, so he called together as many supervillains as he could. It turns out Dazzler's sister, she started to have trouble with her knees, so she needed a death touch walker that wouldn't like death touch to death because, you know, she can like death touch a walker to death, right? <laughs> so she also reached out to Warlock's dad, Magus. You haven't met him yet, but he has terrible back problems, right? <laughs> And Celine, Celine has a heart blockage. She has narrow, narrow arteries, and she really loves cheeseburgers. I really thought you were going to go someplace with him being the person that created Axe Body Spray, but I like the story you came up with way better. No, I like the Axe Body Spray better. <laughs> Fans, only you can decide. It is officially the greatest lineup of all time. It's the creation of Axe Body Spray versus the creation of, I guess, like, Disable the Villains Unite. <laughs> Call in now. We're standing by. We are. We are absolutely standing by. Only you guys can decide who will get the dazzling beauty. <laughs>
And also, I lied earlier. You actually can't find me naming myself after the weapon that I use. You can find me throwing women into a volcano to absorb their youth. Ooh. Or you can find me on Twitter and Instagram at Peak Jonah. Nico, where can everybody find you? Hopefully not Nova Roma. No, certainly not. But you guys can find me all over this amazing network on shows like HTML and We Are Krakoa. Don't get forget to check out the amazing feeds on this network. Hit like, subscribe, follow. I'm pretty sure if you have an Amazon-enabled device, you can just shout at it to play our show, and it fucking will! Don't forget to check me out on Instagram, Nico Action, and I see O-A-C-T-I-O when I never have a shirt on. I'm always flashing some skin. And guys, we love having you as fans, whether it's 70s X-Men Explosion, 80s Mutant Mania, or We Are Krakoa. I see the numbers on old episodes go up every month, and I see the new episodes do better each release, and it's a dream come true to get to share my fandom with my best friends and my husband and my boyfriend and with all of you and it's fucking awesome so until we return to gray malkin lane we'll see ya bye goodbye